The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whichever applies, I'm so glad you're joining me for another episode of Things Are About To Get Weird. If you can't get enough of strange but true stories, you've landed in the right place, as this podcast is packed full of some of the most bizarre tales you're ever likely to hear, and today's episode subject is no exception. Oddly enough, almost the exact same thing happened to me this week as it did when I was researching last episode's story. I was working on my deep dive into today's original subject when I had a Facebook message from one of our awesome listeners, Jemima, who reminded me of a topic that had actually been on my list for months. And once again, it was just too compelling and piqued my interest too much to be put back on the list. So I decided to go with it and that topic is the intriguingly named Lazarus Syndrome. Before I launch into exploring what on earth this incredibly weird medical phenomenon is, I just wanted to give a quick warning that there will be lots of mentions of death and unsettling health-related experiences in this episode as well as pregnancy loss and sexual assault during one part, so please do bear that in mind before we get started. But if you're ready to find out more about Lazarus Syndrome, join me as we head back to 2008 in the US state of West Virginia. On the 24th of May of 2008, a then 59-year-old woman named Velma Thomas was rushed to hospital by ambulance from her home in the city of Nitro. Velma had experienced signs of a heart attack, and the emergency services were called to assist her as a matter of urgency. Realising her symptoms were very serious, the paramedics blue-lighted her to the nearest hospital, and when she arrived, her condition only worsened. Doctors recall that Velma's heart stopped beating a total of three times, and they worked tirelessly to bring her back from the brink of death. The medical team even tried to induce hypothermia, thinking that if they lowered her body temperature in this way, it could help to stimulate her brain, but nothing was working. Velma was hooked up to equipment monitoring her brain activity, and the outlook appeared incredibly bleak. The doctors struggled to find any sign that she still had her neurological functions, and for over 17 hours, no brain waves were recorded by the machines attached to her. Hopes of a recovery were fading rapidly, and doctors advised Velma's family that they should say their goodbyes, and as they observed their beloved family member, they realised that her time was at an end. Velma's son, Tim, described the terrible scene in his mother's hospital room, telling ABC News, There was no life there. Her skin had already started hardening. Her hands and toes were curling up. The most unthinkable decision had to be made, and although it shattered them to do so, the family agreed that her life support should be withdrawn. After spending their final moments together, Velma's respirator was turned off and Tim remembers that his mother's heartbeat was then completely gone. Devastated, and I'm sure in total shock, the family left the hospital soon afterwards to begin making funeral arrangements. But when he was just a couple of miles away, Tim's mobile phone rang, 
and he realised the incoming call was from the hospital. I can only imagine that a thousand things ran through his mind before answering the call, especially being in that early stage of immense grief. But when he did pick up the phone, he was met with the most extraordinary news. His mother was alive. And not only was she alive, but she was awake, talking and asking after her son. When the nurses had been removing the respirator tubes from Velma, around 10 minutes after the machine had been turned off and her heart had stopped, she began to move her arm. The nurses initially thought that this was in line with the reflex movements that can sometimes happen shortly after someone has passed away. But after both her arms and feet moved, Velma moved her eyes, coughed and began to speak. It's almost impossible to imagine the shock that must have gripped the medical staff at the hospital, who had just witnessed their patient who had been considered clinically dead for the past 17 hours, waking up 10 minutes after being taken off life support. As it turns out, one of the main reasons she was kept on the respirator for so long after doctors saw no brain activity was due to her being an organ donor. And had this not been the case and had the life support been taken away sooner, who knows whether the outcome would have been the same. Just a few days after this bizarre experience, Velma appeared on the US breakfast show Good Morning America, where she spoke in a home video saying... I'm feeling wonderful compared to the way I was feeling a few days ago, which has got to be the understatement of the century. And if you're thinking that a case like this must be unique and completely unheard of, people don't just come back from the dead as though next to nothing has happened, do they? You'd be forgiven for assuming that, but you'd also be wrong. Because since the early 1980s, Almost 40 different cases of people seemingly coming back to life after being declared dead have been noted in medical literature, not to mention the numerous recorded cases in history where this exact phenomenon, known as Lazarus Syndrome, appears to have taken place. Before we get into what on earth the explanations for this amazing yet baffling condition could be, let's look into a couple more of these reported incidents. Whilst Velma Thomas made an incredible recovery after her ordeal, sadly the same cannot be said in one of the most recent cases of this incredibly rare event. On the 23rd of August 2020, a family in the Detroit suburb of Southfield called 911 in a panic. The family's much-loved daughter and sister, 20-year-old Tamisha Beauchamp, had fallen very unwell and was having significant trouble breathing. Tamisha's short life had been plagued with numerous medical issues, but on this day, her family recognised that something was very wrong indeed and requested emergency medical help at their home. Paramedics arrived at the Beauchamp residence and immediately tried to help Tamisha, but when she was still unresponsive after 30 minutes, one of the first responders sought further assistance from a doctor over the phone. As Tamisha was showing no signs of life and clearly appeared to have passed away, the doctor felt it right to formally pronounce her death. What happened next is really quite disturbing. Tamisha was taken to Cole Funeral Home in Detroit, which would be relatively standard practice for someone who had been declared deceased outside of a hospital. But it wasn't long before staff at the facility were themselves calling the emergency services. When the 20-year-old arrived at the funeral home and the body bag that she was in was unzipped, 
It was found that her eyes were open and she appeared to be very much still alive. Naturally, the team were horrified and phoned 911 straight away. Tamisha was finally taken to hospital and was considered to be in a critical condition for almost two months before tragically being confirmed to have passed away in October of 2020. Completely understandably, her family were beyond heartbroken and also furious at the mistakes made by those tasked to take medical care of her. In 2020, the family's attorney announced that they were filing a $50 million federal lawsuit against the city of Southfield and the first responders who attended the scene. The attorney, Jeffrey Figer, said in a statement at the time, she died as a result of massive brain damage that was suffered when Southfield paramedics wrongly declared her dead and failed to provide her much-needed oxygen. But whilst he took the stance that she was incorrectly pronounced dead, this view wasn't shared by the authorities in Southfield at the time. In a news conference, the Southfield Fire Chief, Johnny Menefee, stated that Tamisha's recovery could have been a result of Lazarus Syndrome, and this explanation continues to crop up in several other relatively recent cases. For example, back in 2013, A then 37-year-old man named Anthony Yale was asleep in bed with his wife Melissa when, around 4am, she awoke and noticed something definitely wasn't right. As a nurse, Melissa spotted immediately that her husband's breathing sounded very strange and as she listened and became more concerned, she tried to wake Anthony up. When he didn't come round, both Melissa and the couple's 17-year-old son Lawrence began to perform CPR whilst they waited for the ambulance to arrive, which must have been so traumatising. I can only imagine their relief when the paramedics were able to take over and try to revive Anthony. After using a defibrillator several times, the first responders thankfully managed to find a heartbeat and were able to transfer Anthony to a hospital near to where the family lived in the state of Ohio. After he was admitted, things seemed to be looking up and a lot more stable, but by the afternoon, the situation had taken yet another turn for the worse. Anthony's heart stopped once again, and after spending 45 minutes administering all of the medicine they possibly could and trying everything to bring him back, Cardiologist Dr. Raja Nazir made the call to announce that Anthony had died. Shortly afterwards, his distraught son Lawrence ran down the corridor to the hospital room where his dad had been receiving treatment, and the terrible news was confirmed when he saw that the medical team had stopped their resuscitation efforts. Devastated but defiant, Lawrence shouted the words, Dad, you're not going to die today. And, just moments later, he would be proven correct. Suddenly, one of the monitors still attached to Anthony started to register something that wasn't quite a heartbeat, but was a small sign of electrical activity. These flickers remained constant enough over the next few minutes that Dr Nazir decided that they should once again begin to try and bring Anthony back. The progress was slow but significant, 
and unbelievably, after a lot of hard work, their mission was a success. Anthony's heart not only started beating once more, but he made a full recovery. In fact, just a few weeks afterwards, he was back at work and didn't report as much as a sore muscle as a result of his ordeal. Dr. Nazir is quoted as saying, I'm calling it a miracle because I've never seen anything like it. And when you hear stories like these, that conclusion is pretty difficult to argue with. So, if you find all of this as mind-boggling as I do, I'm sure the biggest questions on your mind are, what exactly is this syndrome and why does it occur? I think it goes without saying at this point, but I am not a doctor or a medical professional of any kind. But I am a curious cat who has spent a silly amount of time looking into this phenomenon, so I'll do my very best to explain the thoughts and theories behind it for you. So, the more scientific way of describing Lazarus syndrome is as the auto-resuscitation that occurs after cardiopulmonary resuscitation has failed. Essentially, what this means is that the heart appears to restart on its own after medical intervention to restart it hasn't worked. In terms of the name, anyone who is familiar with the Bible, unlike me, will know that in the New Testament there is mention of Jesus bringing one of his followers, Lazarus of Bethany, back to life four days after his death. Although none of the reported cases have involved an interim period of quite that long, it's understandable why the syndrome was named after this Bible story. Now, as I mentioned, the phenomenon is considered to be very, very rare. However, I did read something quite interesting on this point in an article from the Smithsonian Magazine. The piece notes that several studies have suggested that it might be somewhat more common than people realise, due to certain cases going unreported. And why may they not be properly documented, you ask? Well, especially in countries where it's commonplace for citizens to sue those who they perceive have wronged them. Many medical institutions would be reluctant to reveal that an incident of Lazarus syndrome has occurred for fear of legal repercussions. The way I interpret that is, say, in a healthcare setting, a patient is pronounced dead but then a heartbeat is detected moments later. If the medical team report that this happened, could it leave them open to accusations of incompetence from people who don't understand the nature of the condition? It's definitely possible. According to a review that was written in 2007, published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, whilst sadly the majority of patients who experienced Lazarus syndrome did end up passing away in the hours or days after spontaneously coming back to life, around 35% went on to make excellent recoveries. From all the accounts I've read, it does seem to be that these two separate extremes are the most common outcomes. I didn't read about many cases where the person had, for example, ended up with severe brain damage and in need of round-the-clock care, which I think is an extra fascinating detail of this story. Being clinically dead and resuscitated by a doctor or nurse would be something extraordinary to go through and live to tell the tale but being literally pronounced deceased and then making a recovery seemingly on your own is pretty mind-boggling to think about. I feel like it's the kind of tale that if you told it to someone, they might not believe you or would be sceptical at the very least. 
But as I mentioned before, studies have shown that whilst the syndrome is very rare, a large number of medical professionals do claim to have witnessed a case of auto-resuscitation at some point during their career. In fact, a 2013 study conducted in France showed that almost half of all physicians who worked in emergency care said they'd seen something like this happen. And a 2012 study in Canada showed that a third of critical care doctors said the same. That's actually quite weird to think about. Those fractions must represent a huge number of physicians. But all discussions about frequency aside, we're still left with the question of why. The first thing that most sources cite on this point is that almost all of the reported cases of Lazarus syndrome involve one common element the use of CPR on the patient. There's a theory that perhaps during the act of CPR, the lungs become filled with air far more quickly than they're able to expel it again. This then causes pressure to increase within the lungs, which has a knock-on limiting effect on blood flow to the heart, which could result in the patient having a heart attack. So then, what would happen when CPR is stopped? the body would have a chance to catch up. The pressure would reduce and the affected vital functions would have the opportunity to return back to normal. As the blood would begin to circulate properly round the body once more, this spontaneous resuscitation could then appear to take place. Just to reiterate, I am not medically trained in any way whatsoever. I'm just paraphrasing a theory I've read about, so do keep that in mind. But even to my untrained understanding, this idea makes sense. I can see how this could play out. Another theory relates to the thought that if this pressure and hyperinflation going on in the body following bouts of CPR is severe enough, it could be blocking medicine given to the patient during resuscitation attempts from reaching the heart. Once the body settles after CPR is withdrawn, the medicine may be more able to reach its target and help the heart pump adequately. In general though, Lazarus syndrome is considered to be a mystery and definitely falls under the umbrella of medical phenomenon. I'm sure that, because based on the recorded cases, it looks to be so rare. There hasn't been all that much research done into it as we're speaking now in 2023 but that doesn't mean it hasn't prompted some difficult discussions to be had within the medical profession. Because if you think about it, it really does raise a lot of questions about where that line between life and death is drawn. A physician named Dr. Adhyaman, who is based in North Wales and has witnessed Lazarus syndrome firsthand with a patient, told the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, death is not an event, it is a process. It happens gradually as your organs start shutting down. And so, unless you are absolutely certain, you should not certify death. He also talked about his own recommendation for how to deal with the tricky nature of calling the time of death saying that he would first notify a family that CPR had been stopped, but would wait between 10 to 15 minutes before officially declaring that a patient had died. But there are circumstances where this process becomes more complicated, because of things like organ donation. In the most simple terms, if a person is registered as a donor, their organs can only be removed once they have been pronounced dead. 
they can't be harvested from a patient who is still clinging to their last moments of life. But because of issues relating to blood supply, the organs have to be taken as soon as possible after a person passes away to help make sure they're in as good a condition as possible for the person who will receive the transplant. So there's this really fine balance for doctors to get the call right and make sure that the risk of the patient experiencing something like Lazarus syndrome has passed before they pronounce a person deceased. I tell you, if this is not an example of why medical professionals deserve to be paid properly and fairly, I do not know what is. The stakes are so high and their responsibilities are so intense. They honestly deserve the world. There are lots of articles you can read about the intricacies of the ethical side of things relating to Lazarus syndrome, and I definitely recommend doing a deeper dive if you're interested. But I actually wanted to finish off this story with a look back at possibly one of the earliest recorded examples of the phenomenon occurring all the way back in 1650. Now, this is a disturbing story, not just for the contents of it, but also because of some of the parallels we're currently seeing between this case from the 1600s and what certain lawmakers across the pond would enforce today given half the chance, but I digress. In 1650, a woman named Anne Green, a 22-year-old servant from Oxfordshire, became pregnant by a teenage relative of her employer, Sir Thomas Reed. There are various accounts which state that Anne was sexually assaulted, whilst others say that she was, quote, seduced. But what we do know is that there would have definitely been a power imbalance at play. A few months into this pregnancy, Anne sadly delivered a stillborn baby. And as she was unmarried, which puts her in a very difficult position given the time in history, she did her very best to cover up this traumatic experience. Because under something called the Infanticide Act of 1642, if an unmarried mother gave birth to a stillborn child and there was no one there to witness that the baby had not been born alive, the woman was considered guilty of murder. I know, it's ludicrous. It's unthinkable to be honest, but if I dwell on it, I'm going to become irate, so. Unfortunately, this miscarriage happened whilst Anne was at work, and although she did her very best to lay her baby to rest undetected, it wasn't long before the child's body was discovered where she had buried them. Because Anne had no witness to provide to confirm that the baby had been stillborn, she was put on trial and found guilty of murder. Her sentence was death by hanging, and it was carried out on December the 14th of that year. Not only was Anne hanged, but she had instructed her friends to pull down on her body while she was hanging to make sure she died quickly. After being pronounced dead and cut down from the gallows, her body was placed in a coffin and sent to Oxford to be studied. However, The next day, when the coffin was opened and research on the body was about to begin, it was found that Anne was breathing. She was very much alive, despite being formally declared dead. Although she had been sentenced to death, efforts were made to revive her using techniques including warm enemas, which is, uh, interesting but I can't knock it because the attempts were successful. Anne not only regained consciousness, but made a remarkable recovery. 
Now, luckily for Anne, in the time between her arrest and failed execution, her employer, Thomas Reed, had passed away. And because he was the chief prosecutor, it was decided that Anne deserved a quite literal second chance at life. The surgeon who had revived her testified that her baby would have been too small to survive, which eventually helped to exonerate her and she was pardoned. Anne went on to get married and have three children, though tragically she did pass away during childbirth in 1665. But her story is regarded as a historical example of Lazarus Syndrome at work, and was something that Jemima mentioned to me in her message about this episode topic. Anne's case has been written about numerous times over the years, including in a book called Unwell Women by Eleanor Cleghorn, which is described as a journey through medicine and myth in a man-made world. Although it's obviously impossible to look back and state categorically that Anne did experience Lazarus Syndrome, her case appears strangely similar to many of those that have been cited in medical literature since 1982. Whether any further research into the phenomenon is ever conducted remains to be seen, but it's very hard to deny that this is a captivating subject. I would love to know more about what some of those who recovered fully remember, if anything, from their encounters, but I guess that would be a whole different episode. Although even if they remember nothing at all, they can rest assured that they will always be the one to have the most incredible story to tell in any given situation. I really, really hope you found today's topic as enthralling as I did. There's just something about unexplained medical phenomena that really hooks me in, and I'm super grateful to Jemima for reminding me to finally look into this one. Sometimes when I feature a story like this, I'll get an email or two from people who have some kind of link to it. Perhaps they've even known someone who has experienced whatever we've been discussing. So please do get in touch if you've ever heard of Lazarus Syndrome before now. Even though logically I know that it's very rare, there's something about the stories of those who have fully recovered after going through this unexplained bizarre experience that does give me this strange feeling of hope. It's obviously quite eerie, but it's also wonderful for those families who must feel that they were given a second chance to enjoy life with their loved one. As always, I would love to know what you think about this subject, and I'll be sharing all the ways you can get in touch right after the outro feature I like to call Weird Media. So, since we last spoke, my life was briefly taken over by a Netflix show, and there was truly no way I could resist featuring it in Weird Media today. I'd even go as far as to say that I've been a little lost since I finished watching it. My evenings just haven't been the same, and the show in question is Beef. It's described as a comedy drama, although it definitely gets quite dark at times. And after watching the first episode, I was so hooked that I savoured every moment of the whole series. In a nutshell, the whole show begins with the two main characters, who are played by Stephen Yun and Ali Wong, getting into a road rage incident with one another. And this kind of sparks a whole series of chaotic events. I don't really want to spoil anything by expanding on that summary of the storyline, but it's genuinely a fantastic watch. 
It's the kind of show where there are tons of little details that have huge significance and that you'd totally miss if you weren't paying close attention. So for me, that kept me really focused and I didn't take my eyes off the screen the whole time. What initially drew me to the series, other than the amazing ratings I'd spotted on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, was that Stephen Yun was in a lead role. I was a massive fan of The Walking Dead from quite literally day one. I actually remember renting the first series from Blockbuster when it first came out and I was obsessed. And Stephen, of course, played Glenn, who in my opinion was one of the very best Walking Dead characters. But back to Beef. Stephen's acting was perfection, as I knew it would be, but Ali Wong was also equally incredible and watching their performances felt like such a treat. It's one of those shows where you find yourself daydreaming about an episode a few hours after watching it and you'll suddenly realise exactly why a character made a certain decision because it relates back to something from a previous episode or has a deeper meaning than you first realised. As we were watching it, I said to my husband that something about it reminded me of Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. Not so much in storyline or anything, but more so the kind of tension you feel when watching it, and at times something about the look and feel too. As far as I know, it's not necessarily going to have a second series. I think it was created as a standalone, one-season, complete story, kind of like the amazing Mayor of Easttown if you've watched that, but I would devour a second series in a heartbeat. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you've also watched Beef, I would love to know your thoughts on it. A couple of people I've spoken to didn't click with it quite as much, but I thought it was magnificent. So moving on to the sources which help me with all my research for today's story. We have two articles from ABC News, one from May of 2008 and another from August of 2013, discussing specific cases of Lazarus Syndrome. There's that paper from the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine about the phenomenon from 2007, which had Dr. Ed Hyerman as one of the authors. An article from The Guardian from October of 2020 about the Beauchamp family. A piece from the Detroit Free Press from 2020 about the same case. The Smithsonian Magazine article I mentioned a few times, which was absolutely fascinating and so useful. That one was by Adam Hoffman from March 2016. And finally, a piece on historycollection.com, which was all about different resurrection stories throughout the centuries. Right, a super quick recap of the ways you can get in touch or join our frankly wonderful community on social media. Instagram is a favourite and our handle over there is at thingsgetweirdpodcast. I also love Facebook as it's so easy to chat with you all on there. We have both the private discussion group and the main podcast page too. If you search things are about to get weird over there, you'll find both of those. We're not massively active on Twitter, but if that's your thing, we're at about to get weird. And our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. A little reminder that we also have a Patreon page, which I will leave linked in the show notes for anyone who would like to show their support for the podcast. I really do appreciate every penny. A sincere thank you to every single person who signs up for the Patreon. 
And an equally sincere thank you to all of you for even being here listening today. It means so much. If you've enjoyed the podcast and wouldn't mind leaving a quick star rating or review on your podcast player of choice, I would be forever grateful too. I was so thrilled to be back in the Apple podcast true crime charts last week. And it's all down to you and your continued support, you wonderful humans. I can see from my stats that there are more and more of you joining our community all the time and it makes me so happy. So thank you again for continuing to listen to and hopefully enjoy the podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.